Genesis 2.20. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. With the help of the Lord and from the power of the word, I'd like to minister on this theme, revive marriage. God bless you. Please be seated. Well, happy Valentine's Day to everyone. While this is not a Christian holiday, I have found that it is conducive to a successful marriage to celebrate this day by going to church on Wednesday night and showing our love for God supersedes all other love and not being in super busy restaurants tonight. So there's a strategy and a spiritual component to being in church on Wednesday night. For all the men in the house who are husbands, who so findeth the wife, findeth the good thing, and obtaineth favor from the Lord. So everybody who's favored, God bless you. I want to uh, give a few statements of audience awareness tonight so that you know I know who's here joining us in the sanctuary. I double-checked the church calendar to find who was meeting tonight. So I would uh, speak carefully, and everybody who's an adult hopefully will get it. So we have children. Welcome to all of our kids. I don't have chips tonight. Would you say welcome to all of our kids, all of our children, normally in chips? Glad you're here. And uh, to all of our crowd and hyphen students, their own sessions, hyphen young adults. I recognize that there are single adults in the room tonight, uh, never married. And I just want to encourage you that principles always have applications uh, in our lives. I recognize also that there are people here tonight who have gone through the pain of divorce and are not married at this time, or perhaps remarried having gone through divorce, and you have a life experience of seeing God rebuild the brokenness in your life, or you're currently in a condition of brokenness. We also have men and women in our church who are widows or widowers that have gone through the grief of loss. And if you talk to someone who's been married 40, 50, or 60 years, to think that life will ever be the same or you're going to find a new life that's probably not feasible, but life and more abundant life in the Lord, no matter what season of life you're in. So I want to, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, this, that life is not fair, but God is always good. Life is not easy, but God is always faithful. And we believe as a church in teaching the Bible. Uh, teaching the Bible, that the Bible builds the church. Upon my rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's done through preaching, teaching, through loving people, through the care of the church and other components. But primarily the word of God, anointed by the spirit of God, helps build. And we, we know without me trying to establish divorce rates and the condition of our culture, which I mentioned a few weeks ago on a Sunday we need the Lord to revive marriage. I said it recently, but you know that Satan is a divider. And if he can divide a home, he's divided the first relationship, first 
human relationship that God established, the relationship of marriage. So we know that love is a mystery and it is a wonder, probably not Solomon, but in the book of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 18, in the New Living Translation, the, the proverb, proverb writer wrote, there are three things that amaze me. No, four things that I don't understand. How an eagle glides through the sky, how a snake slithers on a rock, how a ship navigates the ocean, and how a man loves a woman. King James says, the way of a man with the maid. This man who is a proverb writer said, there are some things that I just can't wrap my brain around, hard to comprehend, but we know it is true to life. Uh, I was thinking about how much our world is preoccupied uh, with the worldly idea of love. And I remember many, many years ago when I was a youth pastor, I'm not sure this was a great idea, but I was in the car with several guys in my youth group. We're going on a trip. And I said, I want to try something. I want to just turn on the radio. We're going to find a station. We're going to listen long enough to see what the lyrics of that song are. Then we're going to skip to the next station long enough to see what those lyrics are. We're just going to keep doing that. And that day, every song we scanned to was about love, romantic love in some form. So I was, I was thinking about that. I, I thought, what are the statistics? You know, can I find them? Nowadays, you can find things that you couldn't find uh, a long time ago. And uh, so, by the way, that wasn't an XM radio, no such thing back then. But songs often deal with universal human experiences like love, heartbreak, relationships. And I read a study, and it's actually graphed all the way back to the 1960s. And it's an average. By the way, it's increased. The number of songs about love have increased from the 60s to the 2000s. But 67% of lyrics in every song have been about love since the 60s. I told you I found that chart. The second most common theme would be with romantic desire. And I'm saying that at a high level. I think you understand. Now, the percentages in that graph don't add up to 100, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, Bot Assist said love is a common theme in many songs because it is a universal human experience that resonates with people across culture and periods of time. Love encompasses a wide range of emotions from joy and happiness, to heartbreak and longing, and making it a rich source of inspiration for songwriters. My dad wrote numbers of Christian songs, but for an aunt of mine who had gone through a really difficult breakup, he wrote a really cool song that I wish would have gone famous and made our whole family rich called Thanks for the Heartaches. It was a really good song. That's not in my notes. So, that, you know, I'm not sure that was God, but it just kind of popped in my mind, that song. Well, everybody relates to love regardless of your experience with it, good, bad, or both. And these themes are true with movies and advertising. You know, we know that marketers know what sells products, and so we are marketed with that all the time. Now, in January, our theme was Revive Us Again, opening sermon of 2024. 
on January 7th, on January uh, 14, I preached about a revival of righteousness, of burying things under the yoke. I didn't really call it that, but that's what I was preaching about. And in February, we'll talk about several things, but primarily I want to deal with relationships, uh, about marriage, family, friendships, maybe even neighbors, everyone else that would be included in the parable that Jesus told of, of the Good Samaritan says, your neighbor is anyone who's in need and neighboring is an attitude. So I want to give a biblical perspective of love. And uh, so several things, I'll try to move quickly through this, although you could spend a lot of time. So we know that love is not limited to romantic love in the Bible, that love transcends a love between a man and a woman or friendships or family. The Bible said that God is love and for God so loved the world that he gave and that love is not really demonstrated in the fact that we would love God who would not love God. I mean, but the miracle is that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. These are all the writings of John. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. That love is not romantic love, that it is sacrificial love. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter, the word in the King James, is charity, that agape or agapeo love, that now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity or love. That love is the greatest trait that you can possess, the greatest power on the earth. It is what motivated God to come in the flesh and die for our sins. In the Old Testament, written primarily in Hebrew, the rule would be Ahab, spelled A-H-A-B, probably transliterated. And the love, that word love can apply to many different things. Uh, it's used in the Hebrew original, Abraham loving his son Isaac, Isaac Esau, Israel loving Joseph more than his brothers. It's used of Isaac loving his wife, Rebekah, Jacob loving Rachel, Delilah manipulating Samson. I just listened to that story this week again. My goodness, I, I don't like him. I know he's a judge, but I just don't like Samson. I don't hate him because I want to go to heaven, but I don't like Samson anyway. We're all called to love the Lord by demonstrating obedience to his commands. We're to love our neighbor as thyself. And the Proverbs said, if you love wisdom, you love your own soul. In the New Testament, there's two main Greek words that are used for love, but there are more words that are implied. Two words that are not used, but the idea of them is used. One is eros, which would be about romantic love, passionate love. Not used in the Bible, but the idea like Hebrews 13.4 would use that idea. And then storge, if that's the right pronunciation, would be a love between parents and children, like a, a familial love. Those two words, the concepts are used, but the Greek words are not used. The two words that are used in the Bible that are from the original Greek are phileia. You remember the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Now, that word is used in the Bible of love, affectionate, regard, or friendship, and it's used many times Hebrews 13, 1, Romans 12, 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, 
No, no, no. He goes. And then the most famous word, that first Corinthians 13 word, uh, we would say agape or agapeo, a godly love, a sacrificial love. And marriage and every other relationship that might, might have different aspects of love, brotherly love, familial love, um, really has to be undergirded by a selfless love or that love will not last. Love has to be like God's love that goes beyond convenience or reciprocation that often loves unconditionally, should love unconditionally, a self-serving or self-sacrificing love. I thought this was interesting because I kind of grew up thinking there are three Greek words in the Bible for love in the in New Testament Greek, only two, but I was researching this and there's lots of sites that are not religious, but there are eight different Types of love according to the Greeks, the ancient Greeks. Eros, philea, ludus, playful, playful love, agape, pragma, under long-standing love, and the love of self, love of family, a mania or obsessive love. So we want to go with what the Bible says, but to understand Greek culture and how love was viewed in many different ways. But I have learned the best way to learn about anything is to go to the Bible and the best way to learn about the Bible is go to the first reference of anything. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in our study of reviving marriage. Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image, superlative of power. <clears throat> After our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. This is an overview of creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. Now, I'm not going to stop on this verse for very long, but I will stop for a minute. Because in our culture, this creative norm, this biblical norm has been corrupted. And for all the hyphen young adults, all the crowd students, all of the children in this room right now, we need to teach them that God made them male and female. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply Last I checked, it takes a male and a female to fulfill verse 28 and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. He made them male and female. He gave them dominion. But, but right now in Genesis 1, uh, Male and female have not yet been made. We're going to get into the specifics of it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It took the formation that God did from the dust, out of dust you're taken, to the dust you shall return, the Bible says. And it was the breath of God that made 
Adam a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, I have a very important theological question for you tonight. It's a little silly at first. I'm embarrassed to even say it, but I want to ask you, did Adam have a navel? Did he have a belly button? I say no, unless it was cosmetically put there by God. Because the Bible said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble, but Adam was not born of a woman. Now, I said that's a little silly, but I really said it for a reason. There's a blogger that I, you know, follow, and recently, he's not a Christian person, he has good business ideas, and uh, Brother Jury, I think, reads his blogs too, but on, on March 3rd, excuse me, February 3rd, he, he asked the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And he said that this is a false paradox based on an understanding, misunderstanding of Darwinian evolution and taxonomy, the cataloging, the classification of species. So this blogger said to say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? He said, you're asking a dumb question because you don't understand evolution. That's what he's saying. So I was reading this and he said, the only thing that can be born from a chicken egg is a chicken, whereas something that's almost a chicken, listen to this rationale, could lay a chicken egg. In fact, he said, that's how we got chickens in the first place. He said, the egg came first, end of quote. When I read that, I got really angry. I got, no, it was called righteous indignation. It's probably actually true. Writing from an evolutionary perspective, he reached the conclusion that the egg had to come first. How could the chicken possibly come first? And maybe it was something almost a chicken and evolved into laying a chicken egg. And when the egg hatched, there you had a first chicken. Now, the Bible said, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. You've got to be, have more than faith to believe what I just read in that theory that the egg came first. So I was thinking about Adam, not born of a woman, and how people go back to the origins of man, to the creation story, and try to change the narrative to something that God did not do, did not create. We have a lot of our people who have their ideas shaped by things that are secular and not spiritual or biblical, and they're falling to error. They don't know the Bible, so they don't know how to recognize an error when they read it or see it. I'm not bragging. Everybody would have had that same idea. But when I read that, I immediately thought, no, I know better than that because I have a Bible. And just to kind of keep going with the chicken idea in Genesis 1 and 20, and God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that have life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. He created great whales, every living creature that moves, which waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said to the chicken, be fruitful and multiply. 
not exactly the chicken, and fill the waters and the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. Well, he did talk to the chickens, didn't he? And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So that's an intentional diversion, but into this idea of God's plan for marriage, to revive marriage. Now, we're kind of working our way through Genesis 2.15 now, 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God gave Adam a job. Before he had a wife, he had a job. And that's a good idea. Let that soak in real deep there. Before there was a curse, he had a job. Work was before the curse. After the curse, there was sorrow, thorns, sweat, pain, and death. But before the curse, according to Genesis 3, 17 through 19, but before the curse, there was still work. God made people to work. And then verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. Now, up until this time, everything God made was good or very good. But for the first time, we find that something is not good. It is not good. And now... This statement was not an aha moment for God. It's not like the Lord said, snap, I forgot something, you know. I, I, Adam needs a wife. It wasn't like in the moment. But this is a, the unfolding story of creation. And then it's also interesting to me that God does not sit down with Adam in the cool of the day and say, you know, Adam, I was thinking. Have you ever thought about getting married? But he did something different. He saw that it was not good. And, and the Bible bears this out that all the other creatures had counterparts, male and female. And God now is planning to create someone for Adam. He had a plan. He had a time frame for this plan to unfold. And this woman that will be created will be a helpmeet, a helper suitable for him. She will compliment Adam. She will complete him. And uh, the woman saves Adam from his solitude and from a myriad of mistakes that he would have made without her. Think of the rearing collisions that have been saved by a helpmeet and missed turns and so many things that we men would have done. It is not good that man would be alone. Genesis 2.20. Now, I want you to notice the sequence of verses. It's not good that man should be alone. And then it looks like the Bible goes backwards here. And Adam gave names. You know, why is this? Why are we learning this now? Gave names, all the cattle to the fowl of the air, every beast of the field. But for Adam, 
there was not found a, a helper comparable for him. He didn't have a help me. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. God took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And I have said this at weddings before, but yes, it is true that Adam was asleep when he got married. I have talked to many couples prior to marriage, and I am amazed by how many men are asleep to the details. Pretty much, you stand here, this is what you say, get your checkbook out or your bank account open. This is because typically uh, he has a lesser role in planning all of this. So Adam was asleep. Don't be asleep. Okay. Verse 22, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto man. And then Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She is like him. She's comparable to him, but she has capabilities he doesn't have. She's different than him. You know, I, I love the thing I read years ago. God looked at Adam and he said, I can do better. And so he made Eve, you know. Anyway, so Eve comes from Adam. She's taken out of man. He calls her a woman in uh, Genesis 2.23. He does not name her yet. Uh, she is not named until after the fall in Genesis 3 and 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. It is not significant necessarily, but it's just interesting to me when God brings his wife to him, calls her woman, she's taken out of Adam, and then later she is named, or at least that's the how it unfolds in the Bible. Now, this is such a great story, and uh, the Bible is amazing in its truth. And, and I want to, I want to read a passage of scripture to you tonight. There's a lot of Bible in this, uh, cause I'm hiding behind the Bible tonight, you know. Not really. I'll, you always do that. First Corinthians 11, 7. First Corinthians 11, 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now, this does not mean that she is lesser, because you remember the motivation is, it is not good for this man to be alone. He needs help. She's created for him. For this cause, for the cause of the order of creation, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. We know this passage. Apostolics know this passage about the practical covering of long uncut hair for a woman and short hair for a man. But I'm really dealing with this divine order of creation tonight. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, unless men want to get too carried away with their authority or their role, now he balances this. The Bible always has a balancing principle. Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man, 
in the Lord. And he explains it, which we all know. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. Every other man and woman is by the woman, by birth, right? But all things of God. I love the Bible for every reason, but balancing principles. And here in marriage, a mutual dependence, one on another, but different roles in the relationship. So now we're going to rock it back to Genesis 2, 24. Now this is intriguing to me, very powerful. Some of the most powerful theology we have about marriage, we have right after we have this story of God creating Eve, bringing her to Adam. It is before sin. It is before the fall. So God now gives this divine insight that is going to apply for all of human history. And it is in the very beginning, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave into his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now, Jesus quoted this passage in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. I may get to Mark 10 later, but probably not. New families, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, new families are formed when a man matures, leaves his parents' home to be married. The man and the woman are to leave the home that they grew up in to establish a new home and this is the change of priorities for the man. Before marriage, his primary obligation is to his parents. And even throughout the Bible, Jesus rebukes people who neglect their parents in the name of religion. They call money that should go to take care of their aging parents, korban or a gift that is laid on the altar and beyond reach. But beforehand, it's his parents. Now, it is his wife. And I read a little commentary on this that was interesting. I'd never thought of this before. In Western societies, we kind of think this is normal. But in those cultures, the highest allegiance was to your parents. So now the Lord in the beginning says, doesn't mean you don't love your parents, but now you are forming a new home. And your first responsibility and obligation is to that home. All right, everybody with me? Leave the Bible. Now, I want to say something to all the parents of adult children in the house. Let them leave. Cut the apron strings. Now, I know they want your support one day. They don't want you to meddle the next, maybe. But please do not insert yourself into your married children's marriage issues, unless you're invited or prayerfully and carefully, because that's one of the major things in premarital counseling of in-law relationships. Are your in-laws going to interfere in your marriage? And it can be unhealthy, right? I believe in godly counsel, and I thank God for my parents, for my wife and me, for her parents. Her dad passed away Early in our marriage, her mom was such a support 
and loved us, loved me as a son-in-law was amazing. She was an amazing mother-in-law. I know it's a delicate balance, but I just wanted to say what the Bible says, leave and form a new home. And then God said, leave his father, mother and cleave or stick to his wife. We know there's other scriptures that speak of the permanence of marriage, that God's design is one man, one woman married in a relationship of fidelity or faithfulness for life, a lifelong covenant till death do us part. He cleaves to his wife. One commentary said in passion and in permanence that should characterize marriage. And these two, the Bible said, are one flesh in many ways, physically, uh, in how God sees them. It doesn't mean that they're one soul, that if one is saved, the other automatically is saved or vice versa. Each person has a human will, is free to make independent decisions for good or bad, right? But they are to be one flesh joined together. And, and I read some interesting things that I, I kind of crossed out of my notes, but left them there. But, you know, I grew up in a home and I had two brothers, a sister, a mom and a dad. We were family. But the way the Bible sees this is that now you form this new family and your wife is now part of your family. She's like a sister to your brothers. We call it a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law. But in the Bible, and there's a lot of, lot of information and interesting scripture about this, that you're like family now, even though you're, you come together in marriage, you're one flesh and your families are joined together by that. Verse 25, Genesis 2, 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, we know that sin separated Adam and Eve from God, that sin introduced shame, that they recognized that they were naked, and shame brought a cover-up, an inadequate covering. The Hebrew words there are interesting, like not enough clothing, but something. And then God clothed them with like a tunic. God covered them. And, and I want to pull a New Testament scripture here about this husband-wife relationship that is alluded to in Genesis uh, from Hebrews 13, 4. That marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In other words, the marriage relationship is sanctioned by God, not before marriage, after the covenant relationship of marriage. But any other similar relationship outside of marriage would be immoral, ungodly, sinful, like fornication and adultery that God will judge. Now, the Apostle Paul addresses marital love in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. I'm reading the New King James here. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, I guess they wrote to Paul with some questions and he's writing them back, right? That's what it says. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her 
and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Because of the audience I described earlier, I will let the scripture speak for itself. But do not manipulate your spouse. How's that for a closing comment on that passage? In the New Testament, Jesus referred back to this Old Testament passage, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. He spoke about the exception clause for marriage, which would be marital unfaithfulness. In Mark chapter 10, I do want to go through Mark because he quotes and he gives us a little insight here. And uh, I will not get to all the epistles on marriage tonight. I'll just tell you where they are maybe later. Mark 10 and 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Well, they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said unto them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. So I want you to notice what Jesus does. He said, I know what Moses said, and I know what has been the common practice. But we're going to go back to what God instituted in the beginning, God's original design for one man and one woman for life. The Bible is a very transparent book about favoritism, about polygamy, about marital unfaithfulness, about harlotry, but I'm going to go with the teaching of the Bible, old and new, but I'm going to trace it back to the beginning to what God ordained in Genesis. And Jesus does exactly that. He quotes Genesis. For this reason, a man, verse 7 shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God had joined together, let not man separate. And I still like the King James there, let not man put asunder. That's a pretty powerful word, right? Now, Jesus, he's adding, not to the scripture like illegally, he's God. He's saying, this is what, God was saying in Genesis that what God has joined together, don't let anything put asunder. In the house of his disciples, excuse me, in the house, this is later, right? Teaches this. Now he and his disciples are in the house together. Uh, In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So this is kind of interesting to me. Uh, Jesus, we heard what you said in church. But now it's just us. Would you run that by us again? Now, I know they heard it. And I know they understood it. But it was messing with them because of Moses. What Moses allowed, right? So Jesus says, whoever. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we have Jesus teaching on marriage and divorce and the fidelity that should be in marriage. And this is the way God ordained it in scripture. I said I was not going to do the epistles, but I'm just going to do a read through of Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. And we're going to call it a Valentine's night. 521. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. A good marriage is not 50-50. It's 100-100. It's win-win, lose-lose. You never get your way in your marriage. If you always get your way, it is a horrible, unhealthy dynamic. You have a horribly unhealthy marriage. You submit to one another. And I put this verse here because it precedes the teaching to wives that if I was a wife, it would be difficult, right? Wives, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So a husband should be like that too, right? A savior, a protector. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, let, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Here's the balancing principle. Remember, always balancing love and respect here. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Sacrificial love and leadership. Not like the big king, a servant. That he might, and this is why Jesus did that, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. It's covering. So all men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, here it is again, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, he says, let's get practical again. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Colossians gives a summary of this in Colossians 3. First Peter chapter 3 gives a similar passage about the role of wives and the role of husbands. And it ends with the phrase to husbands, you to give honor unto your wife is unto the weaker vessel and as an heir together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Right. Takes this practical marital teaching and he says, I just want you to know that this is really spiritual and problems with your spouse create problems with God because he instituted this relationship and he wants it to, to succeed we desperately need to revive the marriage relationship as a fundamental or the foundational building block of our society. Would you please stand?
Musicians are coming to play the wedding march. For everyone who is not married, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. But in the beginning, I said, I recognize our audience tonight. If you have a couple moments, would you join me at the altar? And I want us to pray for marriage. Your marriage, yes. But I want us to pray for marriage. Because marriage in our culture is under a fierce attack. Amen. And I often, I feel like the people in authority, whether it's the government or the church or the home, feel like the people in authority have the primary responsibility to change it, to change the dysfunction. So to every husband, every father, every man, or women who are head of homes, because there's no man there, it's up to us to change ourselves, to change our culture. I preached about it on the first Sunday of the year. Malachi, I will send Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. God said, the thing that will hold back my judgment is a revival in the home. So let's pray for that right now. Lord,